Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. We are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. All right, Derek, it's time to take a trip down to Hobbiton. We're going to go visit the, the familial home of the Bagginses. As we set out on our journey with Frodo, the Hobbits, and the Fellowship of the Ring. Shall not pass. So Sean Connery was supposed to be Gandalf. I'm going to start off with that. I think that was really funny. He turned it down because he did not understand the script. That was the account I got. Welcome to Wonder Tour. Um, <laughs> we are back and we are doing one of Drew's favorites, which is, I'd say, this, is this favorite of all time? Uh, it, it's got to be my favorite probably my favorite universe of all time i think i like star wars better and i like like okay. movies better like some of the nolan verse stuff i like the movies better but in this situation like this is some of my favorite lore i i really like to dig into lord of the rings i'm going to try not to be too nerdy today though it's going to be hard it's going to be a tightrope we're going to be walking on here <clears throat> it's like we're yeah, be walking over it. a walking over a fiery chasm right <laughs> It's got to be contextually relevant. So, yeah, that's uh, all right. Well, good. Let's I don't know, man, kick us off because I'm I'm excited. But I'm also, you know, it's it's huge. This is a huge movie. This is a big one. It is. It's a long movie. It's always fun to try to sit down and watch this. It's like we're watch some days you're for Wonder Tour. We're watching like an episode of Parks and Rec. <laughs> and so you have to like read between all of the lines. And then some other days we're watching lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and it's a extreme extremely long movie and we can't possibly talk about half of it even so well let's just start off with what you love about the movie derek talk to me about what you love about it because you know i can gush all about it <laughs> i would say that the best thing that i like about it is that it transports you um so I think it, it really puts you in that world. And um, I think they play a lot with speed in the movie. So you start out real slow, you know, and you, you kind of experience the Shire. And then after that, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like fast and slow, fast and slow, fast and slow. And um, it's all appropriate. It all makes sense to me. Um, and, and man, it is just a long movie. And I, I love that when I watched it in a theater. I was like, I don't want this to end. Like, I need to figure out what happens next. And I remember being like, oh, man, I got to wait for the next two to figure all this out. 
because I had, I mean, spoilers, I had not read the book. Still haven't read the book, actually. So I know <laughs> it's a big wonder tour sin there. Possibly. Not having read the book With before Drew. the movie? No. <laughs> you gotta, you, everybody enjoys things in different ways. And those, those books are, are quite long. I recall that before I was allowed to go to see The Fellowship of the Ring, I had to first read the book. That's what my mom made me do. So I, I read the book first and I, I loved it. I was immediately hooked from there on out and I had to read all the other books. And then I, you know, was eagerly awaiting all the other movies to come to theaters. It was, it was awesome. That but is awesome. I, I love the, for me, it's the characters and the world. And so I'll try not to get too deep into that because I have a lot of fun with it. But the characters are just, they're they're so like brilliant. And I mean that in like the, they shine bright sort of a way. They have these personas that are attached to them. The, these, this character, not just, you know, the, the physical character, but like this character that they exhibit and each one of them is so distinct and they interplay with each other so well it's a testament to Tolkien's writing, how well he fleshes out these characters and how each of them has such an important role to play in the saving of this world. And then also it's a testament to Peter Jackson and how he did these movies that these characters feel so good. And we were talking before the show, Derek, these <laughs> most of these actors playing these roles never, did not go on to do incredible things, but they did such a great job playing these roles that I got to give a testament to the people who, who created this starting with Peter Jackson. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, it really makes me think about George Costanza for a second. And I know you're like, what? But he always wanted to end on a high note. So maybe that's where they were at with it. Costanza, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think about that. Um, I think if I were, an actor in, in this particular arc, I'd have been like, I'm done. That's it. Can't do better than this. I mean, once you see the movie, you're like, whoa, you know, so. Well, the practical, um, effects, the practical effects are incredible in this. Like the, all of the people who went and like gave their all to, to build this, like they built a pretty much a masterpiece at some point. I'm sure we'll see this remade, you know, 20, 30 years from now because it's just an, an incredibly valuable property. And, you know, the kids won't want to see the practical effects anymore. They'll want it all to be CG. But watching it now, like, it actually, to me, seems like I'm being transported to a magical realm uh, based on how the practical effects were used versus, like, going back in time. I don't see how anybody could outdo this. But, I mean, I, I guess they probably said that about, you know, every movie they ever made. But it's just like, I don't know, it's so good. And then, you know, it is 20 years old now. I actually got the math right this time. Yeah. I messed up the math in Pinocchio, but uh, this one I got the math right. So <laughs> that was easier. Uh, but uh, 20 years, yeah. I mean, and I'm thinking to myself, it really, it, it shows this age a little bit. I don't know how that works in movies or why that is, but, I mean, it's just like little... I don't know, like a little gut feeling. You're like, this is a little old. But overall, I'm like, this is still amazing. And uh, so I think it's got, it's probably got a good 60 years total, you know, before somebody tries to do it. I, that's just my opinion. I have no idea, to be honest. 
Yeah, who knows Spy- how long. I didn't get to, I haven't seen the Ultra HD versions of it yet either, to be honest. I bought them for my brother, but I haven't seen them myself. So I if need it, to watch the Ultra was, HD versions. I was going to say, if it, was, if it were Spider-Man, it would have been remade three times since now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's, now. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Maybe 20, 30 years was, was too soon. We what might, is wrong we with might Spider-Man? take 50. <laughs> <laughs> They've remade that so many times. Yeah, you're right. All right, sometime um, we'll do Spider. We'll do a wonder tour of Spider-Man three, and we'll learn all about Venom. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, I know it's one of your favorite movies ever. Oh, You've yeah. mentioned it like three or four times yeah, on Wonder yeah, Tour. It's been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, Derek. Let's hop in here. We're not going to go scene by scene, but let's start off with some of the stuff that really interests us here. So I think the mentor relationship is obviously critical here you're introduced to it right from the beginning where you have gandalf coming through on his uh on his cart he's got his fireworks in the back uh and frodo's waiting there reading a book by the tree that here's gandalf coming and there's this joyous celebration as gandalf uh is showing up you can see that frodo has this just intense admiration for gandalf um, as do a lot of the hobbits. Some of them are more apprehensive about him, but you can even see that one hobbit who's like trying to look down on Gandalf because he always brings trouble to Hobbiton. But <laughs> actually, when when the other hobbits aren't there, smiling at <laughs> at Gandalf's fireworks and antics and stuff. So Gandalf is just like to a hobbit. What is Gandalf? <laughs> can we start with that? That's a really weird thing to think about because they live in this tiny tiny world well yeah that's the first thing right his height i think he's a tall person and he's a tall person that actually uh takes notice of them right i think that's part of it oh that's definitely part of it i like that right just looking at the physical uh, differentiation just putting them next to each other yeah, hobbits get overlooked. I mean, Sauron has no idea what's going on with the hobbits in Hobbiton, right? <laughs> he never would have thought that the ring was was in Hobbiton. So, but Gandalf, he engages with the world in such a way that, you know, he he gets the richness out of it. He wants to meet the hobbits and, and be there for Bilbo's birthday celebration, right? He goes and finds Bilbo initially um, to go on the journey in The Hobbit. I know we're not talking about that today, but right, Gandalf is this just really this leader to look up to. And it's not that he's flawless. He's not put in here as this pure leader character. He certainly snaps at the other characters and gets angry with them and <laughs> and it gets frustrated when he's dealing with hobbits, you know, Peregrine took <laughs> stuff like that. But Gandalf, what would you say his leadership style is, Derek? Ooh, uh, for one thing, I think he's got <clears throat> he's got some trip wires, possibly, but they're not they're not extreme responses. Uh, I think about the one response he had in the house where he kind of like made the whole room go dark for a second. That was an interesting response to me. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. So like he's got a he's got a well manicured temper. He can hold his anger in check. Um so what is that? Is that just being is that being wise or 
I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm talking it out with you. It's more fun that way. That that's what I was planning on doing. It's just talking it out with you. Yeah, he. It's interesting. It's actually really hard to say for me what what the wisdom is in that. And the tripwires is a good call out. I think he has these parameters set up, and you when you cross these parameters, that's when he's going to call on the fact that he's been here for thousands of years and <laughs> that he's been walking the land. He knows more than anybody about this about Middle Earth, and but most of the time he's going to let you be on an adventure and we see that in the hobbit and we see that in 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 lord of the rings he's really wants the other members of the fellowship and of the team to learn but he does once you get outside the box of of learning even you know again he'll let people learn where they're going to make mistakes and where they could even get hurt for sure but when it's getting to the point where of just sheer stupidity like it was with Bilbo in the ring when he's trying to hold on to the ring. He just steps out and he's like, absolutely not. It's like, I'm just, you have to listen to me. And that, that call out is hard because there's times that we all wish I'm, I'm sure that we could just like in the middle of an argument or a conversation, just like do that thing where we make the room dark and are just like, just shut up. Like you're arguing for a point that doesn't make sense. We are shut up. We don't need to be arguing right now. Like we're on the same side, but that it that doesn't seem to be feasible in a world where we're all humans and we're all on the we're all equals, right? In this world, while Gandalf sees himself as an equal to the hobbits, he's kind of a demigod. So he's <laughs> there's a little bit more going on there that where he does have a higher level of knowledge and wisdom than all the other characters do. And they recognize that. It's not like he's just telling them that he has a higher knowledge and wisdom. They actually believe that. <laughs> I like that. And I was thinking about also how, you know, if you say he's he's been on in that world that long think about how many lifetimes he's seen come and go and he knows all the trite mistakes uh, that somebody can make. So I think that's probably why he's got those, those kind of lines that people cross. And then he's like, Oh, oh they're heading into this model. You know, I mean, think about how many models you'd have of somebody making mistakes and messing up by the time you were, you know, even a thousand years old, you had seen 10 lifetimes of mistakes of various other people. That's an interesting one, you know. So I don't know. He's like a benevolent. He's a benevolent leader. He's he's an extreme like servant leader, right? He's always putting the team first, but he is callous. I think that's is that a good word for it? Is he calloused? Yeah, I think he's callous, but he's not jaded. So I think we'll we'll we know we've talked in the past about how being really like let's say ultra calloused, you know is essentially tantamount to jaded, <laughs> meaning you don't believe anybody can do any good. When you're jaded, you're like, I can't trust anyone. Everyone's going to fail me. You know, that's jaded. And I think callous is some people are going to fail me and some people are not. And I need to find people that aren't going to fail me. Um, and, and I think that's what, you know, partial callousing. And in that way, I don't think callous is that bad. Because it's inevitable at some level. And I'm not, not being fatalistic. I'm just saying that, you know. It is. You know, it's just part of living on this this earth. or it's part of getting older. 
right? It's part. Yeah. It's just part of getting older. So that's that's a really good point because this is kind of this isn't a contrasting model to what we've talked about in the past, where you we do want to grind down our calluses. That's that's important because maybe the the operative thing here is to not let your calluses make you jaded, because we're going to get calluses as humans traversing our journeys, our wonder tours, inevitability, <laughs> inevitably we will get calluses. But our, our mission is not to let, as, as magnanimous leaders, we wanna not let those calluses make us jaded, right? Absolutely. And I was thinking about something here and, you know, we're not, we're, we're, we're all spoilers, you know, and holding nothing back, so. I think when he went to Gandalf the White, what do you think about this? That when he changed to Gandalf the White, is that when the callousness was essentially taken off and he just saw good and evil at that point? I think that's kind of interesting. I kind of like that. I would have to go back and watch The Two Towers and The Return of the King back to back to be able to talk to that, but I will in the future with you. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. that's a really good point. Does he does he kind of drop those calluses? Because that's kind of when he does become the more the more pure leader is when he becomes Gandalf the White. But we know that being a white wizard by no means makes you pure. Now it gives you greater abilities. It may, gives you greater sight potentially. I don't know how you want to define sight here, but we can see that Saruman the White is has extreme sight. He can see all the different things that are happening, and the way that he plays the game is very different than the way that that. Gandalf plays the game, whether he's gray or white wizard. Yeah, yeah, and I'm interested to talk about that one later because I think it's it's a really interesting discussion about good and evil. So we'll we'll uh, we'll push that one off. Um, one more. Do you want to talk about yeah. the, the? Do you have one more thing before we talk uh, for the mentor still here? Um, I want to talk a little bit about what yeah. what happens, what to do when your mentor falls down the hole with the Balrog. <laughs> because th- that, that's yeah. one of the big scenes in this movie is we all remember it. You know, you did it at the beginning of Sean Connery. I love that at the beginning. <laughs> but you shall not pass. The, the fellowship is just becoming, while they're this, this cast of characters that are all, again, brilliantly different and have their own flaws, they're finally meshing. And then Gandalf, who their fearless leader, who they they just believe in with no 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 holds barred. He goes out and the, when they're leaving the mines of Moria, and he goes out on the the pathway, the stone walkway, and he has to face this Balrog. Um, it's pretty cool. Balrogs are kind of a similar power level to a Gandalf, <laughs> if you could say that. So it's a pretty one of the coolest showdowns I would say in there. I'm, I'm assuming in this. Amazon show that we're going to get there may be Balrogs in there at some point um, or similar beings. So you have, I guess, similar to a power level of a dragon almost, you could say as well. But you have Gandalf going out there and he, the way he deals with this Balrog, he doesn't go and fight it head on. He doesn't, in, in this current situation, he's on the Balrog's terrain. There's no way he's going to be able to, he, he, he just plays the protectionist role, right? Yeah, he tries to draw it away, you know, and I mean, you get to the bridge, you have that situation happen, and it's, I don't know, it's this classic, like, phew, moment, you know, and then all of a sudden, 
nope. <laughs> so yeah, the whip comes back a, up and grabs it. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's really cool in you know, stories when that happens, honestly, like because it's you know, it adds an extra twist to it that you otherwise it's it gets kind of boring. You're like, oh, got rid of the 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 tension's gone. No, no, no. The tension gets doubled down on right there, you know, because they just lost him, supposedly, right? And I remember watching that in the theater and being like, Oh man, oh that sucks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah if you didn't know the rest of the story and you're watching that yeah. that's that's tragic because you just like yeah, Ian McClellan, you're falling in love with gandalf you're like this dude is awesome i want to be like this guy like i wish i was a gray wizard <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and that's and and you hope that you're you know a mentor like that someday too i mean i i like to think of you know that like where you you know you you appear to have these i mean i i don't know maybe that's something fun to talk about for a second here but where you know i think someone who is farther down the pathway even in career it looks like they do have powers but then you kind of as you experience them using them you're like i could do that i could i could see myself doing that i could pull that off you know and you realize hey you know i'm kind of learning to do the things that this person is doing which I mean, it is the essence of good mentorship. I think it gets kind of glossed over sometimes, but uh, you know, I don't you know. Can emulate that. it. Yeah, that's great. That that's good. So, what do you do when when you lose your Gandalf? And they, it, you can lose your Gandalf in different ways. You know, I've seen that you lose your Gandalf because your Gandalf passes away, and just like in this situation, right? Sometimes they're facing down, you know, a beast of evil, and sometimes it's just natural causes. But you can lose your Gandalf that way. You can lose your Gandalf in a in a situation where they, you know, it's a, unfortunately a <laughs> more of a falling from grace situation, right? Because in our world, our Gandalfs are humans and all of us have flaws. So you can lose them in a falling from grace type of a way. Um, but when that happens, there's, you, we have to figure out what to do. So I love the idea of like, well, you can emulate pieces of them, right? Like you, you can emulate pieces of that person. And I've seen this this happen in both ways and it can tear people apart when they're Gandalf because they had put a lot of faith in that person and they were, you know, that person was kind of their conduit to their own powers. But let's let's learn from the movie here then. What do we do in that situation? So they're coming out of the mines and the hobbits are like rolling on the ground crying. You know, of course, it, it's terrible for Frodo. This was his, you know, one of his best friends, it seems, or one of the people he looked up to in the world the most. The other hobbits, for them, it just seems like all hope is lost. Boromir's freaking out. Um, we don't, Legolas and Gimli are, are cool and collected, it seems like. But Aragorn has to step into the role finally. He's been this, this rider. He's been this. Um, this recluse for most of his life and now finally with Gandalf gone he has to step into this role and Boromir's arguing with Aragorn he's like he's like let him grieve let him grieve and Aragorn's like no we're gonna die if we grieve we, we have to keep going you have to yeah you have to keep going you have to uh you have to see past the mentor I guess at that point <clears throat> you get a I think the first step is just to take stock, probably just to take stock of the influence that that person had on your situation. And I'm thinking uh, when you're saying lose a mentor, I'm thinking 
maybe they uh, transfer into a role where they've got a lot more responsibility. I think that's probably the most probable one. Um, yeah, yeah. I was using the dire ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Because um, those happen too. Um, but yeah, they, they move into a role where they've got more responsibility and now they suddenly just don't have the time that they used to have for you. They move across and, the country. Yeah, I've had that happen. I've had that happen. And I think, you know, in the reality of that happening, I mean, one thing I can say in response definitely is that I then shift into a mode of I have to do this. And here's the other one. This is the simultaneous one. I need to help them wherever I can, too. So I cannot forget what they did for me. I have to reach out, you know, and in indirect and direct ways, you know, I need to turn that around and become their Gandalf in a way, <clears throat> in a humble way. You know, um, <clears throat> I would say the best of mentors will accept that being reflected back to them. And you, I think you have a real opportunity to say what you gave to me, I'm going to like refine it because it's going to go through me and we're going to see what the flaws are and what you gave me. And then I'm going to kind of come send that back to you, like how I'm using it. And you may see a version that is kind of corrected for errors or something like that. And I don't want to mean, I don't mean that in like any kind of bad way for any mentor, but I think we all, like you said it before, Drew, you said, you got a house full of crazy art and these are your experiences. These are your lessons. And you are uh, trying to explain that to somebody else. And that's kind of mentorship. <laughs> I, really <laughs> like, I really like that the way you explained it. And I think that's perfect because then the person goes and says, do you see this painting in this house? This painting is amazing, but let me tell you why it's interesting. Not because of this, it's because of this, right? And you point out a different aspect of it and you have a different appreciation for a particular tactic or a way of doing something. And you're like, this is the next refinement. You know, this is and I think this is the essence of the apprentice teacher relationship, you know, playing out, you know, refined blacksmithing, you know, take it take it back to the lore here just for a second. You know, um, you know, the third blacksmith's better than the first one, isn't he? Yeah, that's I love it. So let's try to create a small model here for what happens when your you know your fantastic mentor moves on. So number one, you take stock. I like that. Number two, you refine or you recalibrate. Number three is really new growth, right? Once you've taken stock and understand where you're at, this as soon as your mentor leaves. You can wallow and you can you can go back or you can stay in stasis or you can grow, but it's really an opportunity to grow. And then number four is you train the next blacksmith, right? You have to start. It, it's your job now to to pick up where your mentor left off and bring the next person along, teaching them those same concepts. That's perfect. I like that. Are you ready for the moment now? I'm ready for the moment. All right, we'll move on from the mentor. I'm so, going to let you set up the moment. All right, let's set up the moment. So we're going back going back earlier in the episode here to the first meeting of the fellowship at Rivendell. They're deciding what they're going to do. 
with the ring. It's kind of presided by Gandalf and Elrond, as I recall. They have these representatives from dwarves and men and elves and even hobbits here who are going to try to figure out kind of the fate of Middle-earth, the situation with the ring. So let's start our moment with they're kind of revealing the big reveal that this is the one ring. Everybody kind of knows, has these stories in their head about it. And Boromir comes forward and he's like, he sees the ring as a gift to man. He wants to use the power of the ring to go smash Sauron once and for all. Talk to me about Boromir's response to the call to go on this this journey with the ring or to do something, you know, basically they're at a decision point, right? They've been handed this ring. What is Boromir thinking here? And and why do we want to compare and contrast how Boromir views it to how some of the other characters look at this, this decision to pick up the ring? Well, I think this might be a good time to at least talk about kind of an introduction to, you know, game theory and how you know how at this moment you've got to to look at what pieces are on the board and let's say you're playing an rpg role-playing game i don't know you know who has done that who hasn't done that you know who's listening to this but um you may have a weapon or an item you pick up and you actually can't use it you don't have a high enough level to use it Um, it happens all the time in RPGs. And honestly, I was like, oh man, so many times I've been like, oh man, I really want to equip that sword, but you can't, you cannot equip it. So right there, that should be a time where you have to reflect. And he did not do this. Obviously he, you know, uh, Aragorn points it out, you know, you can't wield it. Um, you know, and that's kind of like, he's setting out a rule of the game, which is actually, you know what the rule is, you can't use it. So right there uh, you know he, he doesn't accept that right away obviously right but um you know he is kind of like trying to defy the rules of the game and you do that to your own peril um you know and so there there are certain rules that have to be followed in this process of lord of the rings and you know we're going to touch more on this in the second half but I, I wanted to prime the pump here a little bit so let's talk about game theory First, then we can come back to Boromir's decision and then eventually Frodo's decision. So how can we, all right, Derek, without getting into mathematics, how can we best talk about game theory? Somebody here, maybe they have had familiarity with game theory in the past, um, or maybe they have no familiarity with game theory. How can we conceptually talk through game theory? Maybe if you can give us a you give us something to riff on here, then I'll try to kind of repeat it back to you in a different way, and we'll see if we can come up with something. Well, I think, in, you know, if we want to frame up, you know, the game theory uh, for Lord of the Rings, and, um, you know, I think it's it's interesting because I'm, I'm just recently discovering it myself, uh, thanks to you, but... I really find it interesting because a lot of it has been my intuition over the years. And now I'm like finding that there are ways to describe intuition, which is pretty cool. And it 
people have the logical types out there in the world have made it into a mathematical art. <laughs> so anyway, I think in this, you have to realize who the players are. I think that's the most important thing to start off with. Um, you know, you could just be like, well, it's good versus evil, blah, blah, blah. But yes, it's good versus evil, but who specifically, you know, is good and who specifically is evil, right? Sauron is the evil side, right? And all his forces. So anybody associated with him is in that box. And then we have the good side, which is the fellowship and anybody associated with them. How's that as a starting point? Yeah, so that's perfect. Let's start with the actors so or the players in the game. So the players are one of the key pieces of game theory. Another one of the key pieces of game theory is going to be the decision, right? So game theory espouses that we're going to try to make a good decision. This can be a strategic decision. This can be an operational decision, but usually it's called a strategy in, in a game, right? So we'll, we'll probably here to refer it to as a strategy. So here the decision is when they're sitting at this this council at Rivendell, what are we going to do? We have this ring. We basically find ourselves in a, in a situation where if Sauron gets the ring, so he's one of the players, Sauron slash Saruman, depending on how you look at it. Um, if he gets the ring, we lose. He's going to cover all of Middle Earth in darkness and potentially even, you know, he's going to destroy the universe, basically, or consume the universe. That's his end game. If we can destroy the ring, then we believe that Sauron will also be destroyed. So it's like basically it's a zero sum game in the end. So what you're what you're finding out is that there's a decision to make in, into what are we going to do with the ring? And then the third part of game theory, first part, again, let's rehash this. First part is who who's, who are the players? Second part is what is the decisions? Third part is what is the outcome? Or what is the perceived benefit to the players by going a certain route, right? And each each route that you go, each player makes a decision, and there's a certain payoff in that situation, right? So let's let's use a hypothetical example here. If the council at Rivendell decides to use an army to take the ring to Mordor, so they use the the front door, right? Sometimes it, I think I like to think about game theory in terms of the front door so uh a friend of mine had i'll give credit I, I, he didn't come up with it i'm sure but i'll give credit to phil um <laughs> to explain this example to me of there's three ways into the club right you can go through the front door through the bouncer you can go through you can try to sneak in through the back door or you can try to sneak in through the side door right so in there's <laughs> you can think about that in terms of game theory too right like there's three ways into, into mordor or the club <laughs> you could go in through the front door um with an army you can go into the side the back door um which in this situation would probably be the um the maybe in this situation let's just call the back door bringing in you know you're jumping the fence with your friends so we're going to bring the whole fellowship through the back door or you can go through the side door which is what we end up seeing happen in Return of the King when he Frodo and Sam have to go through the the tunnel um, in the into Mordor there and go through that arduous journey into Mordor. So at this point, they don't have to decide on all of those things, but they have to kind of decide what's the overall trajectory of our journey going to be. Are we going to go with a head-on assault against Mordor and try to and try to you know take the fight to Sauron? Or are we going to go with a small team, kind of a Navy SEAL team type approach to 
bring the ring to uh, to Mordor and destroy it. So I'll let you <laughs> respond to it. I know I've been talking for a while, Derek, and I like this to be a conversation. So where do you pick up there? No, that's good. And I think this is a, a great uh, a great time to kind of maybe come up with some application material since we're kind of rounding out this episode, um, which is just kind of talking through, like you said, you don't have to have it all figured out, but you do have to set your trajectory. So I like the way you said that. And you need to know generally which way you're headed. Um, I think having the fellowship, having a multifaceted team with different strengths and weaknesses was a good way to start. And then you kind of optimize and people are going to get peeled off. Boromir. So sorry, buddy. Um, You know, you get peeled off along the way, like people drop out of the race, whatever it is, they may, they may sacrifice in various ways to get you there. Right. Um, So I think that that's, that's something that comes to mind for me. Um, Let's talk about Boromir. Now can we get back to Boromir and Frodo? Because Boromir and Frodo, what they're going to do is they're going to fight for opposite, opposite ways of dealing with the situation. So Boromir wants to go in power to Mordor. He wants to wield the ring and use it to destroy Sauron. So that route, at this point in the story, because they only have as much information as they currently have sitting at Rivendell, they don't have information that they get further along in the story. So they're going to try to figure out what the benefit is from going. So like, let's say Boromir's saying, let's go in power and and beat down the front gates, basically. So what happens if Sauron plays that in power? If he makes a power play against that, Sauron's going to probably wipe the floor with him. Because he's still got Saruman, he's still got all these these evils from across Middle-earth that he's been pulling together. And as we see in Return of the King, they're going to need a lot more power to, to be able to ever defeat Sauron's armies than they have at the time in, in Rivendell. You know, they're not going to have enough time to put together an army, right? Yeah, he's producing an army. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you look at, you know, one of the things that's the most dangerous about that army in particular is that he's able to produce an army. Um, his guys aren't as good on a per guy basis. The orcs are not the smartest and they're not the best fighters, yada, yada, yada. But he's got the numbers and he's got the ability to produce more. And then if you look at the, uh, the Middle Earth army, the good side, they have they have a communication problem. That's their problem. <laughs> and I think there's a, a lesson here. And, you know, <laughs> as I'm trying to pull out this lesson, but it's it's that I mean, this is a very classic one. I live this one often, but it's that you've got to go around. And it, it's probably one of my favorite scenes. I think it's in Return of the King, right? The lighting of the the beacons. Um, man, that is a powerful because it's it's really mashed up with like really good music too um you know and but light in the beacons you know that that was their problem they they just couldn't get people to get on the same page uh and and unite right whereas uh sauron's army was more about production and he is just like raising it up 
Um, he's brute force, right? He's and he's, he's, he's got strategy. Yep. He's got strategy too because he's been playing the long game for a, a, a extended extended period of time to the point where a lot of the creatures in Middle Earth have forgotten he exists. That's how long of a game he's playing. <laughs> so and and it, he he can because he he's you know kind of this minor god, so he can play that long game where. He has, you know, he can grow in power over time. So let's just look at this the other way. So let's say that Sauron stays back in his keep. Essentially, he stays back um, and he's just going to um, he's just going to amass his forces in the back and he's not going to do an all out. He's not going to go fight them um, in a in a battle. So all they're just sieging. That's not that's not going to win. Right. The power, the, the all out assault that Boromir's calling for plays into Sauron's hand, but what Frodo now, Frodo comes forward and he humbly offers to take the ring himself. Now, let's remember that Frodo, like five minutes before this in movie time, is sitting there talking to Sam and he's like, yeah, I'm really ready to go home. (laughs) And so these hobbits are not, they're not built for war. They're not built for traveling for years on end. They're not built (laughs) to take the ring to Mount Doom. That's, they're not, they just don't seem to be built for that. And so he's just so tired and already ready to go home. And he looks around and he realizes that the dominant strategy, all these people are arguing over who's going to take the ring and how they're going to do it. And if they're going to, you know, if they're going to use the ring or if they're not. And Frodo's just like, I'll take it myself. Like, I'll do it. So he recognizes that to go in power is futile. To, to, to wage a war on Sauron is futile. So what they need to do is they need to go small. And what's better, <laughs> what better to go small than by a hobbit? And then what happens in turn is the other characters, the other members of the fellowship all fall in line behind him, right? So it's, it's beautiful. It doesn't always work like this, but what we have here is to your point, Derek, a dominant strategy, which means that for the, for the members of the fellowship or, or for really for the good guys, the dominant strategy is to go small because no matter what move Sauron makes, if they if Sauron wages war and they go small, they're probably in a better position because they can sneak around behind all the armies that he's been putting together. If Sauron stays back in his keep, it's still better than what happens if Sauron stays back in his keep if they have if they bring a war to him because his keep is just impenetrable pretty much. Only by folly are they going to be able to lure him out and, and take him on in that situation. So it, it's a dominant strategy, meaning that the, their best decision is always to go small. And Frodo pro, uh, provides that. And then all the other characters kind of come in line behind him and realize it. It's only, of course, because it's a movie and an awesome story that it's also the, the little guy uh, kind of narrative that's playing out here where we're going to go small and it's going to be the humble offering. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to need swords and stuff for this, really. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that's right on. I mean, I think it's a great intro to the story and an intro to how we can how we're gonna apply game theory more in the second half here um, and talk through um, you know some of the decisions now that we know the players now that we know that the outcomes are. Um, is there anything else you want to add on that for now or? I well, I just I just give a short real life example. I mean, a real life example of where where a dominant theory is going to be helpful for you is when you can concede. So if we can compare it exactly to the what Frodo does here. He essentially concedes. He doesn't take what is optimal for him in this situation, but he takes the overall dominant strategy 
a lot of times if you can find a position in business where the or or in a relationship or anything where the dominant position is to is just to concede that's a huge win basically what it's saying is like if you choose to fight it's just going to create animosity or it's just going to waste resources um even if you believe that your your solution is better or whatever you're you know you're arguing for is better you're fighting for sometimes you can just kind of reason it out and realize that like actually we'll get to the same result or a better result no matter what if we concede that's i mean it happens to me unfortunately <laughs> probably too often in in you know not like shouting matches but just like debates about how things should go i realize like huh actually it doesn't really matter so i should probably just concede at this point like i i just spent the last 10 minutes formulating an argument for my my side and then now i'm realizing like Actually, the dominant decision would just be to let you go because it's going to be more empowering if if I concede and put the power back in your hands and then we move forward with that. Does that make sense, Derek? Is that a good example? 100%. Yeah. And we can talk more in the second episode about what the person who is conceding has to go through sometimes because um, I think there's a there's certainly some processing that they have to do uh on their side to kind of be okay in the long term um because you're yeah we'll talk about it in the second episode because i think there's some good stuff there um get ready to go deeper <laughs> if we, that's right we, yep. we set the table here but now it's time to eat some dinner <laughs> in part that's two that's right <laughs> all right and with that i will say that if you have something to add uh, on this episode hit us up on at the wonder tour on twitter and uh next week we'll be doing the second half of lord of the rings fellowship of the ring and remember that all who are wonder are not lost we'll see you next time